we get to hear from the Lord in His Word. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, which we summarize as good news for a bad news world. And so I have the privilege of preaching good news to you from verses 12 and 13, which have to do with the fact that God is in the business of changing us. Not just that he will one day, you know, when we are resurrected, but today and tomorrow. That's what this passage is about. Um, if you know that you are not the person that you should be, if you feel the guilty conscience for your sins, if you feel stuck and you don't know the way forward, the good news is that there is a way to change, and God has shown it to us in these verses that we're going to explore. So let's read the text and then pray for the Holy Spirit to open its meaning to us. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. There's so much behind just one or two sentences. Because your word, Lord, is, is, it taps into the infinite God that you are. There's, there's depths to you that we only scratch the surface of. But Lord, give us the joy this morning of plumbing some of those depths, of seeing what's behind these phrases like by the Spirit and debtors and putting to death the deeds. Show us what it means to do that and how to do that. And we thank you that we can because of what Jesus has done. In his name we pray. Amen. What do you do after you sin? What do you do the moment your conscience tells you that you've done or said or thought something wrong and that you need to change? There might not be anything that's a better indicator of your grasp on the gospel than your answer to that question. We might try to silence our conscience by saying we've actually done nothing wrong or done nothing serious anyway. Uh, I was in a park one time sharing the gospel with people and part of it was explaining the Ten Commandments and I asked this lady, how would you score yourself on a scale of one to ten out of the Ten Commandments, and she gave herself a ten. <laughs> Some people's answer to how you change is, I don't need to. Others, much more self-aware, I would say much more honest, are aware that they sin, and they silence their conscience in a different way by trying harder to do a better job of it. The thought is, if I clean up my act, if I stop doing this wrong thing and start doing the right thing, then I'll know that I'm a good person. I was like that, not only before becoming a Christian, but for a good long while afterwards. Trying harder to be good was my answer to how do you change. The Lord has a different answer than both of those answers. His answer is to receive God's power to put to death your sins. 
It will involve owning your sin. It will involve hard work. But what will make the difference is doing it in the power that God supplies through His Spirit. Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a putting to death of our sins that we will engage in, but we will, it will be by the Spirit or else it will fail to produce any change. We will not experience day by day the abundant life that Jesus came to give us by His death and resurrection. So we're going to see how we do that as we think through these two verses. There's a way forward, and it's not only hopeful, but it's based on the sure hope of the gospel. So let me just start with an affirmation about the character of God, our Creator. Paul says in verse 13, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. God wants us to experience life. He wants us to live. The ultimate fulfillment of that desire, of course, is that people who put their trust in Jesus as Savior live forever with God in a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be endlessly happy. That's resurrection life. But it also involves immediate life in this world, which is that we become more and more free from sin and from all the little deaths that we die as we do it. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. There is a way that even believers in Jesus can live as if God is not there. We can let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We can, um, let, we can obey the unholy passions that have not completely left us. And every sin brings a little death with it. A regret, a consequence, a strained relationship, maybe even a prison sentence. Lost my place. All these things are what it looks like that the wages of sin is death. There's a present-day experience of it, and there's an eternal experience of it. Our God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to live. He is for us. So do you really want to live? Do you want to have satisfaction? Do you want to have gladness in your heart? Do you want to wake up every day and think, there's a reason for me to live. There's something I'm looking forward to. I'm glad to be here. God wants that for you. He actually does. But the only way that we're going to experience that is if we do it His way, and we call that sanctification, the process of becoming more holy. It is putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That's God's way for us to experience day by day the life Jesus purchased on the cross. So how do we do it? I'm going to arrange this under three steps. In real life, you won't always follow them exactly because life is messy. <laughs> um, sometimes you may have to start at number three and then go back to two and one later. But this is the order of things that Paul presents to us in these verses, which tells us about their order of importance for what will help you put sin to death. And I want to acknowledge that I learned a lot of this from my time in the pastor's college with Jerry Bridges on his class called Grace and Sanctification. 
back in 2002. And so I am eager to pass on to you the deposit that I've gotten and that was life-changing to me and still is. So here's step one, God's way of us experiencing life day by day. First, deal with the guilt of your sin by recalling what Jesus did for you. First, deal with the guilt of your sin by recalling what Jesus did for you. Paul says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors. We are debtors. That's the environment in which putting to death our sins is carried out. And we can't rush past this statement that you are debtors in order to get to the other steps because this is a critical worldview. And skipping over this is probably the number one reason that we don't see change in our lives that we would like to. We talked about it at length last week. What is the debt that we have? Well, it's the debt of love and gratitude to God for His mercy and grace in Jesus. The gospel is that God sent His Son into the world to rescue us from our hostility to Him. It says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit. It cannot submit. Jesus came to rescue us from that situation of inability to to move toward God. And he did that by laying on himself the blame for all of our sins that we commit as our substitute, receiving our death in in him. And those who accept that as truth, who trust Jesus as their sin bearer, receive forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God and the guarantee of eternal life. So here's what that means for you now. As a believer, means you can rest secure in the knowledge that Jesus, in Jesus, you are forgiven for your bad attitude, for your angry outbursts. You are forgiven for your failures as a parent. You are forgiven for your selfish decisions, for your lust for your indifference, for your laziness, your self-sufficiency, your overindulgence, your silence when you should have spoken up, your inaction when you should have acted, you are forgiven. He paid for your sins that are in your past and and the sins that you are committing now and the sins that you have yet to commit. Jesus said to God the judge as He spread His arms on the cross, You charge that to me. And you count them as guiltless. And not just until they mess up again, but forever. Permanent, unchangeable verdict in God's courtroom. That's the love and the grace, and the mercy of God that we are debtors to. And not as something to pay for, but as something to respond to. And the way we respond is by putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That is a way that honors the sacrifice. 
That foundation is where putting to death sin has to begin. You have to deal first with the guilt of your sin by recalling what Jesus did for you. Now, why is it important to begin there? Because otherwise, your efforts to put away sin and live a more holy and righteous life will not work. One of the theologians of the past, a man named William Romaine, put it this way. He said, no sin can be crucified either in heart or life unless it be first pardoned in conscience because there will be want of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. If it be not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. Now, here's how this works. You do something bad and you feel guilty. And you want that feeling of guilt to go away because guilt is like a burden that you carry around. It's a weight, which is so well pictured in the Pilgrim's Progress, right, where Christian has this big, big bale on his back and he's trying to get rid of it. That's what guilt is. It feels heavy. So you have to get rid of it somehow. And it's natural to think you can make the guilt go away if you stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the godly opposite thing, that somehow that will balance things out. So you say to yourself, there, I did it. I'm better now. I took care of it. I'm a righteous person. But if you know the gospel, you can see the problem with that because that is called self-atonement. It's dealing with your guilt by your own actions instead of by the actions of Christ. It's silencing your conscience with your better performance, not by His perfect performance. But the gospel says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. From Romans 3.20, not one thing you do, no matter how right, no matter that it is commanded in the Bible, it will not justify you, it will not remove your guilt. The gospel gives better news. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.28. We hold that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24. We hold that Jesus took away all our guilt on the cross. So if you try to put the death, the deeds of the body as an act of atonement, instead of resting in Jesus' atoning death, you will fail. You will be relying on your own cross, not His, and that goes nowhere. Because it either leads to self-righteousness, because you think you're doing a pretty good job of it, or it leads to despair because you know that you're not. Neither one leads to actual change. You just trade one sin for another. Instead, the first thing you do after you sin is you say something like this to your soul. Yes, I sinned, and that is a grievous thing to me. I want to change. I'm going to make plans to change. But I thank God that Jesus Christ has made atonement for this. I believe that it is finished. The debt is paid. I don't need to pay for this because God has already paid for it. That knowledge will free you up 
from your burden and actually be a, a stimulus for change instead of quench it. That, that was a life-changing revelation to me in 2002. I went to the pastor's college with a load of guilt on my shoulders. I wasn't always unhappy. Uh, there were good times. God used me in the lives of other people. But when I wasn't busy, when I had time to think about my life, when I did a self-assessment, I didn't feel forgiven. I felt guilty. And I felt that way for probably 15 years. And I was trying to get rid of that feeling by doing better, and it wasn't working. And then in pastor's college, I learned why it wasn't working. It's because I was trying to atone for sins that had already been atoned for. And once I realized that, the weight came off. I realized I was loved and accepted by God, not based on my performance, but based on Christ's performance. And the surprising thing is that it actually gave me incentive to put away sin from my life because it changed it from a have to into a want to. Now it's a way to respond in love and gratitude instead of a way of paying off a debt. And we see this motivation in the Scriptures, this grace motivation, this motivation of the cross. There's the story in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery in the very act. I won't go into the story except to say this. When Jesus protected the woman from her executioners, and sent her on her way, it was with these words, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He expected that his rescue, his display of forgiveness, was sufficient motivation for her to go and sin no more. Another theologian from long ago, Horatius Bonar, captured the sentiment. He said this, There is no spring of holiness so powerful as that which our Lord assumes Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Free and warm reception into the divine favor is the strongest of all motives in leading a man to seek conformity to him who has thus freely forgiven him all trespasses. A cold admission into the paternal house by the father might have repelled the prodigal and sent him back to his lusts. But the fervent kiss, the dear embrace, the best robe, the ring, the shoes, the fatted calf, the festal song could not but awaken shame for the past and true-hearted resolution to walk worthy of such a father and of such a generous pardon. Friends, remembering what Jesus did for you on the cross is the powerful spring out of which holiness and change flows. That changes our have to into a want to because we know we're debtors to mercy. It changes duty into delight. And delight is the most powerful motivation we have. We may do what we have to do, but we will do what we delight to do. And love to Christ makes holiness a delight. So the first step in putting your sins to death is deal with the guilt of your sin by recalling what Jesus did for you. We are debtors. Here's the second step. 
deal with the power of sin by recalling what Jesus is doing in me. We deal with the power of sin by recalling what Jesus is doing in me. Again, going back to verse 13, Paul says, By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit. So after you become aware of the need for change, and hopefully with love and gratitude to Jesus as your motivation for change, you start to form a plan for how you will change. But here's where we can also go wrong. We can do it in our own strength. We can simply look to our own resources and willpower to make something happen. Because Paul says we need to do it by the Spirit, which implies there's another step before your resolve and your effort. There's this by the Spirit part. The Spirit's got to be involved. It's the Spirit of God who gives you power day by day to change as we depend on Him. So let's camp on that truth for a bit. We're told in the previous passage that the Spirit of God dwells in you as a believer. And that means God Himself has taken up residence in your person. And He is called the Spirit of Christ earlier in Romans 8, meaning that Christ Himself dwells in you by the Spirit. That's why He can say, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Why God can say, I will never leave you. He is in you by the Spirit. Jesus is there. You're joined to Jesus by the Spirit, like vine to branches, and it's His power that gives us the ability to overcome the attraction of sin and temptation. See, Paul said earlier, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. It means none of us is endowed with a reservoir of strength in our natural selves that is sufficient to put to death one sin. Nothing good is in here. That is, apart from the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, and He is the one who will ultimately bring change. It's His power that's going to do it, that we can access. It's the truth of Ezekiel 36, 27, where the Lord says, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Holiness in the Christian life owes ultimately to the fact that the Lord dwells in you by His Spirit, and He will cause you to obey His rules. It's not just you. It's Him in you. It looks like you, but it's Him in you doing it. That's why Paul can say he's going to complete the good work that he began in you in Philippians 1.6 because he started something. The change has already happened. Already the fact that you want to change is change. Already the fact that you desire holiness is a holy desire that the Holy Spirit put there. Already change has happened. And it's going to reach its zenith, its completion, its ultimate goal one day in that you'll be resurrected and you will be holy in your person as you already are now in your status. You're going to become, in your experience, what you already are by the work of Christ. But it's still you involved in the actual process of obeying. We see this kind of language about you and the Spirit at the same time. You see that all over Paul's letters. 
Let me just quote a few verses. Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works in me. Or Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You hear the theme there. I toil, I work I work hard, I work things out, but I do it with God's energy. God is working in me. It is the grace of God that's giving me the energy to live according to His calling in my life. Jerry Bridges called that dependent discipline. Or if you like bigger, wordier name, theolog- theological names, qualified synergism. Okay, Or you can use dependent discipline. Both good. Growing in holiness is about you putting to death the deeds of the body. It is your hard work getting rid of your sin, but it is by the Spirit that you are doing it. You are dependent on the Holy Spirit to get rid of your sin. Now, how do you functionally do it by the Spirit? How's that different than doing it in your own strength? Let me put it this way. I think you know the difference between doing something in your own strength and doing it dependent on the Lord. Have you not at times come to the end of your strength? Do you remember what that feels like? For students, it feels like finals week. (laughs) Exhaustion, depression, caffeine overload, emotional meltdown. I'm not making this stuff up. As a father of many college students and one myself at one time. For moms, much the same thing, except instead of homework, the subject matter involves a sink full of dishes, a pile of laundry, unfinished do list, and the wails of little voices who did not get their way. We know what it's like to come to the end of our strength. But have you not also at times felt, even under those exact conditions, that you were being carried by the everlasting arms? Haven't you at times, despite overwhelming responsibilities in front of you, despite the awareness of your failures and sins, haven't you at times felt peace come into your soul and strength to do the next thing because of this unseen hand of God supporting you? If you have, here's probably what made the difference. You remembered Christ and His salvation. You remembered that God is with you. You remembered a promise of God. You got a higher perspective on your situation than what was just in front of you. Maybe it was a word from a friend. Maybe it was something you read. Maybe it was something God brought to mind. But the clouds parted. And a ray of light burst into your soul, and suddenly you had strength to get up and do the next thing. That is what it is like to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. When the clouds part, because you see something, you believe something, you rely on something that's true because of Christ. And it puts a new strength there. 
And now you do it. Ten minutes ago, you were laying on the floor, miserable, but you got up. How did you get up? Because God showed you something that's true and real and bigger than what's in front of you. It's you receiving strength by the encouragements and realities of what's yours in Christ. It's you knowing that this sin you're battling is forgiven sin, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's you knowing this sin doesn't reign over you because you are dead to sin and alive to God. It's you knowing the Spirit of Christ dwells within you for such a time as this, and by His very presence you will have the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Another way to say it is what Paul said in Romans 8, 5. To put to death your sins by the Spirit involves setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit, as we saw last week, are all the things that God has given to us freely in Christ Jesus. Truths like the ones I just listed. It's, it's your activity that proceeds from a heart and mind filled with trust in the living God and knowing that He is for you in Christ, and that it's going to be okay. <laughs> Change happens as you set your mind on the things of the Spirit so that you can receive power to slay the things of the flesh. That's the process of sanctification in a nutshell. That's how we put to death the deeds of the body. Change happens as you set your mind on the things of the Spirit so you can receive power to slay the things of the flesh. Again, it comes back to what you know, and not just to what you know, but what you remember in the moment, and not just what you remember, but what you firmly believe and rely on, the work of Christ for you and His continuing work in you. Just as we are saved by faith, we are sanctified by faith. Now there's one last step. And this is where your effort comes in. Third is you deal with the sin in front of you by taking action. You deal with the sin in front of you by taking action. I've been quoting it all, all day long, but here it is again, verse 13. Paul's expectation of believers is that by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. The key phrase there is put to death. That is strong language. That's wartime language. It means take no prisoners, uh, give no quarter, pull out all the stops, do whatever it takes to get this sin out of your life because it is the enemy. It's the enemy of the life that God wants you to experience. One old saint from the past said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now that confronts the idea that all we need to do to grow in holiness is to let go and let God or just believe more in your sanctification, though I believe we should believe more in our sanctification <laughs> or in our justification, rather. It confronts the idea that of passive approaches to sanctification that somehow it's just going to happen to me. But I don't think Jesus was advocating for a passive approach when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
I know that's hyperbole, that's exaggeration for effect, but there's an effect that he wants that to have on us, which is be zealous to kill sin. Be zealous for holiness. Crave godliness. Don't just get used to it. Don't just learn to live with it. Put it to death. But the only way you can do that successfully is if you start with steps one and two. That's why we spent most of our time on those, because the rest of what I have to say, you already know. I don't think our obstacle to putting sin to death in our lives is because we don't know how to do it. Our obstacle is that we love sin more than we love holiness. But once Christ becomes beautiful and satisfying to us, once holiness becomes a a delight, now we can change. Now we have the power to overcome. Now we can employ strategies. And there are strategies for putting to death the deeds of the body. So let's talk about them. You can think of sin like an enemy that's out to kill your relationship with God and to prevent you from being useful to help others have a relationship with God. And it's legitimate to think of it as sort of a personality out to get you. Because the very first use of the word sin in the Bible is Genesis 4-7 where the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is like this person waiting for an opportunity to pounce, to have you, to make you pay the wages of death. And you're going to meet him on your life's journey. He's crouching at the door. So what do you do to keep him at bay? Three things you can do. First, you do what you can to avoid temptation. As in Proverbs 4, 14 to 15, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. A lot of our sin happens just because we aren't doing anything to keep ourselves away from it. Like internet surfing at 1 a.m., like uncritically consuming media and entertainment without assessing its effect on your soul. Like not taking a regular time to seek the Lord and His Word in prayer. Like not meeting regularly with the church for fellowship. Avoiding the path of the wicked, avoiding sin, requires first knowing it when you see it, and then having the resolve to turn away. And discernment and resolve is strengthened by being with the Lord and with His people. Otherwise, you're like a recovering alcoholic who continually passes by the liquor store when you could be driving a different way. You're asking for trouble. You know what tempts you, but are you doing anything to stay away from it? By the Spirit, you can. Second, You flee from temptation. Sometimes you can't avoid temptation because it's seeking you. Like the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7 who says to the young man, Now I have come out to meet you, to seek you er eagerly, and I have found you. Temptation is like that. Links to porn pop up on your screen when you Google groceries. You're not looking for it. 
But all of a sudden, there's this ad, this link. It's, out, it's there. It's coming after you. A driver cuts you off in traffic, right? and you're prone to road, road rage. <laughs> you were happy one second ago. Now you're furious. What happened? Conditions to let your heart come out happened. Someone offers you pot at a Christmas party. There are times when you can't avoid a temptation where sin is seeking you eagerly, and that's when you have to flee. Like Joseph in Potiphar's house when his wife came on to him. You have to recognize that if you toy with this for a while, you're going to fall. Your best defense is to close that web page, leave that party, uh, run to a memorized scripture that helps you deal with your anger. You do whatever it takes to remove yourself from the temptation that's in front of you. And third, you pursue righteousness. This would be the positive, active thing to be doing. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You do need to flee unholy passions. You need to flee from the things that tempt you, but that's not enough in itself. You have to run somewhere else. You have to pursue something that that replaces it. You have to replace an appetite for evil with an appetite for God. And for holiness, an appetite for righteousness and faith and love and peace. These things need to be cultivated. So you get into your Bible a lot. (laughs) That's how you pursue it. You let God's thoughts wash over you and change your thoughts, change your desires, change your heart. And you do that with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You, do, you surround yourself with others who are involved in that same venture, who are going to influence you and help you put to death deeds of the flesh. The bottom line is, much of our sin life loses strength in relationship with the Lord and with other believers in the church. That's where we get the discernment and the strength to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That's why we have discipleship groups. It's one place. It's a context where you get strength you need to avoid and to flee and to pursue and to remember what Christ has done for us and what He's doing in us. What specifically those three categories are going to require in terms of concrete steps is going to vary according to the sin and the situation. But that's why we need each other, to help figure it out. But we do know the way. God assures us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what that way of escape is? You get tight with Jesus, and you get tight with Jesus' people. (laughs) They'll give you the strength. Through them, through the means of grace, God will help you endure. He will help you escape. So let's not neglect those fundamental things of the Christian faith. The Word, prayer, the people of God. And we will be able to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Here's the only specific thing I'll say about 
how to put sin to death. It's that general resolutions for change aren't enough. You need to extend that resolve to the particulars of your actual sins. General resolves versus specific sins that you're actually going to do something about with specific plans. In other words, don't settle for, you know, I'm going to be less angry in 2020. <laughs> okay, good. Now, how are you going to do that? <laughs> and, and when do you actually get angry? And what makes you angry? And what does that reveal about the things that really matter to you? And are those things worth all that energy? Or have they become an idol that replaces the true God in your life? That's where we can start to deal with the root problem here of your anger. And you can resolve, okay, when I get angry the next time and I throw up, blow up into a rage at my kids, at my wife, at the doctor or whatever, I'm going to pause and I'm going to think, why am I so upset right now? What is it that I want so dearly that I'm willing to fight for it? And if I identify that, and I might have to have somebody else come into that and help me see it. Once I identify that, I'm going to confess that to somebody. I'm going to bring that into the light. And that's going to help wither the root. And I will change. So that's getting more specific. A lot of times we don't change because we don't really have a plan because we, it's too general. We want something, but we're not really doing something. <clears throat> that's a practical thing. Change happens in the details, not in general resolves. Let me close with this. There's a way to grow in holiness and to sin less. We're never going to be completely sinless in this life. No way, no how, not going to happen. <laughs> but we can and we will make progress. And it begins when we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. When we remember what Christ has done for us and what He's doing in us day by day, and that gives us the power to slay the things of the flesh. That's how we grow. And one day, all sin will be removed from our lives by the Savior who loves us and paid for it and guaranteed our eternity in holiness. That's coming. We get to have foretastes day by day. And as we do, it is life to us. Let's pray. What a wonderful thing that we're not on our own here, Lord. And even more, that even when we're struggling, even when we're falling, above all that, for those who are in Christ, there's this assurance. You might fall down, but you'll never fall away from me. I have you. You're mine. I love you got a future for you. Lord, thank you for that assurance. I pray that everyone here would have it, would go from here with it, and that you would give us the strength we need through each other, through your word, through your spirit, to put to death the different deeds of the body that we have. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.